Hello and welcome to Ray Russell, composer, guitarist, actor, photomicrographer, balloonist, and quantity surveyor. Nice to see you, to see you nice. Well, thanks, Richard. It's really nice to uh, be in my own home talking to you. I wish uh, I missed the airports. You've played in so many different styles with so many different people from the the craziness and fun of Mike Gibbs to you know playing with McCartney and playing mm. searing a rock with Gary Moore and and uh you know all of these different things I'd like to know how you as a guitarist prepare for each one of those projects what what process you go through let's start with Gary let's start with Gary I mean you know I I did happen to know Gary anyway from because he's a he's a Brighton lad. Well, he's not really a Brighton lad. He's a Liverpool. Uh, he's a uh, Irish lad, but he's he lived in Brighton quite quite a while. So I I, I got to know him, and I actually asked him to do that gig, uh, which he did because he had he felt that he really needed to go and play somewhere and just just have a jam. Mm. I'm not I'm not worried about. But you know, of course, he had to do Parisian walkways because. Um, as he said that when he uh, did, did a gig for Putin in Russia, they demanded that they give him the running order and they gave him the running order. <laughs> and it said, uh, Parisian walkways, something else, Parisian walkways. He played it five times and I mean, you know, that's it. So he got very fed up with that. But he, he did make the remark that they paid him nearly a million quid to get over. Right. So that's where the Russian tax goes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know, but no, I mean, well, Gary, he's a great guy and, and, you know, I love his playing and, you know, we just suggested a couple of things that were easy to play, you know, uh, in the, in the, in the kind of fusion book of standards mm. and just, and just went on there. I mean, he's more rocky harmonically, you know, he doesn't uh, play so much uh, modal stuff, but I noticed that he was playing a lot of stuff that he never usually plays. Right. And, you know, I mean, it was it was just great. You find yourself. The thing is, I think about always about this. You you get influenced by each other. It's 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 always it's always cognitive. You know, it's always creativity is always of the band. Right. It's never going to be. You know, where I say we're well, Gary used to plays. You know, out front and they play around that. Of course, they're inspired and they play great. But this is just you know come down and someone counts it in and no one knows really what's going to happen right right so that was a great spontaneous kind of event really yeah but the thing is that you can go from that to uh playing in a very kind of composed situation where you're hired to to play with an orchestra or or the really uh uh unusual excesses of Michael Gibbs, for instance, fitting into that area where it's very composed and yet Mike Gibbs mm. gives you a lot of freedom. Uh, and the music is not necessarily easy because I, I know having played in his band uh, when I was uh, at Berkeley that some right. rather demanding. So, I mean, whenever you take on any of these gigs, what I'm kind of trying to force you to say with a whip on your bottom is <laughs> what, what do you do probably the two weeks before the gig before the the project starts what what do you do to prepare for it as a guitar oh. well with mike i mean i knew uh some of his stuff i listened to uh, a bit of his stuff because he didn't really have um 
a lot out, you know, before that Decker album. Uh, in 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 the UK, people didn't really know him. I mean, you know, a more more jazz player's name that 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 came up and it obviously widened his audience. Um, so I just listened to his earlier stuff and and that was it really. That was my woodshedding. I mean, I do I do believe that you you know you do have to woodshed, um, but you know there are times when you're not going to ever be able to do that and it and you run on on the collective inspiration you, you have to you know like when we were playing uh third day um what's third day on i got an acoustic room um, oh good i mean you know it's like that's like going to turn into a country and western ballad isn't it no, except no. that the, the first notes of flat and fifth or something you know and and uh, we were playing this with uh, with Mo Foster because he just uh, you know to to play it you know to gig it and um, even now and you listen you listen to the harmonics I mean it's it's kind of it's very very tasteful when it comes to playing a solo he kind of wants you to do your thing but you have to base it you know on, obviously on what he's written and yeah. then you have to get in and out of those those changes yeah and yeah. that's not easy. That's, yeah. But you, so you're thinking ahead of the, you've got to think ahead of the changes all the time. Yeah. You know, uh, and then when you get, you know, you get the music in front of you, which I hadn't seen any of that. Oh, um, it's a reading gig. And what's interesting is, like with Mike and, you know, a lot of people, they, they presuppose that you, even guitar players, can read music. And, you know, the, the generation 10 years before me could all read dance band music as you, right. No, for your dad, you know, it's, it's, they're great readers. Right. You know, and I'm sure he, he taught you to read. And, um, well, actually, that, that he didn't. And, and he wasn't a great reader. He could read because he had played a bit of violin when he was a kid. All right. But, but he relied on his ear a lot. I mean, he could, he could basically read, but, uh, uh, he, well, he didn't yeah. read at all. But, but yes, it is a reading gig. And I know that when I was, uh, with Mike Gibbs and he put a tune in front of you it was like what the hell is this and then you'd realize the the genius of the composition and you'd realize where yeah. you fit into it well it's a natural thing but I, I tell you I tell you actually going back to my first ever gig um where I quit school early you know sounds sounds like one of those early rock songs yeah um which was probably in about the right time um <laughs> and and joined John Barry Seven which I I con my way into that by by woodshedding on a, a little uh, I don't know if they haven't had them in America but they were called Danset record players. You probably had the, the equivalent, you know, one valve I and one. I was in England. I I had Oh one. you're in England. I had you have one, one of those. Yeah. Of course, in, right. In nineteen sixty two. Oh that's right, yeah, of course. That's sixty two, wow. And you know, I never really thought about is is the record player playing in tune or not. Oh boy! You know, you know that was that only gave me the cold sweats after I joined the band. About six months later, someone said, "As an offer, lucky that record player was playing in tune." I thought, "My God, that could have been that could have been really bad news." Anyway, I mean, I pretended the only thing I knew about that gig was I wanted to, um, you know. Uh, uh, Bruce, Bruce Springsteen, my way out of the job, my day job, right. and um, you know, and uh, and I got to an audition, 
and what I did was I my you know my parents were great they they bought me uh, a couple of discs you know help with John Barry you know hit and miss you know the uh, Vic Flick playing the James Bond theme right yeah and, and they only really just started well, that was about the third film then and he started the band uh, you know to publicise him and his writing and you know obviously as a spin-off and so I get to this uh, doomy place in um, in North London. It's like a front of a cinema, and they just set the um, the uh, music stand up. There's no electricity, so we have to kind of climb over the ticket desk to plug me in. Nice. And then they <laughs> and they put up this this thing, and the first one is James Bond theme. And they put it up, and it says the James Bond theme. Well, I can read that, you know, because I learned to read the score if nothing else. Nice. And then I played it. And he said, "Wow, that's that's amazing. That's great." And then the sax player phoned uh, John up and said, "John, this guy's good. He's great. He's going to be really great with the band. He knows all the tunes." And John said, "Great." So anyway, that was great. And I I went back to my mum and dad who were petrified. I said, "Listen, I'm going pro. I'm going on the road. When well, in about three days, you know." Right. Luckily enough, they were cool. I mean, very cool about it. And uh, I'm sure she was having kittens, my mum. But anyway, you know, anyway, about six months later, they decided they're going to get all the new stuff in or some new tunes. And they came up with a lot of new tunes. And um, one I couldn't quite get. It was quite hard. And the guy said, how did you learn all those tunes? I said, listen, man, I've got to own up. I said, you can fire me if you like, but I kind of learned them. He said, well, anyone who can learn them, can, can learn to read. And then I took an acoustic, old acoustic guitar on the van, you know, those days. Right. And um, he took me, uh, he, uh, this is Dave, Dave Richmond, the bass player, you know. Right. Um, and Dave taught me how to read music. That's fantastic. And, and, and so did, I learned it. You know. did, you, did you get into studio work from, from those days or was it later? No, that was really, so I... I left you on because they they wanted to kind of it was it was kind of dissolving it. But what was what was nice is we uh, kind of ca- uh, carried on our relationship. And I I did his films. I don't know about I did about ten I think until then the um, the composers changed apart from you know the the original Monty Norman thing which he you know wrote some of. But he you know I mean his scores were you know. It, I don't know, it just depicts you those times. Then, um, you know, they were great to play, but then other people came in. But, you know, I did, I did a lot of uh, of the stuff. But what happened after that was all the guys disappeared into different things, and I got phoned up for a session at Bandstown um, by, I think it was, I can't remember, it was Ron Edgeworth, the pianist, who's now left us, I'm afraid, but said, you, you want to do do this session and i said well yeah i'd love to you know the thing is never refuse anything but woodshed quite right you know went down it was it was pretty easy but there were there were three guitar players you know it was a time when when sometimes i get two guitar players would play together you know because they weren't really overdubbing i mean it was a four i think it was four track there was john mclaughlin was the uh one guitar player and I'm Jimmy Page. Sorry, yeah, Jimmy Page was. Uh, I, I get and Jimmy was there, and John McLaughlin and me. Well, how about that then? You know, but I, I didn't really know. And and John said, 
to me, uh, halfway through the session, he said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to the States and, and start playing with Miles Davis. Do you want the job with Georgie Fame? Nice. So I said, yeah. You said, yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, yeah. I said, we say, yeah, yeah actually, that was like, on. that was the hit, you know, at that time. And I think he thought, oh, I don't want to play that, you know, because, I mean, George's aren't, aren't, you know, in the uh, original sense of R&B. He's sitting on parchment farm and Indeed. we all got to play that. So, um, and then Jimmy said, yeah, he said, I'm going to uh, quit playing sessions and, um, and start a band. Well, you Guess came what? in at the right time then. Yeah, I thought, oh, that's too gone. Yeah, that's it. Now, well, you know, and we did this session, and they liked it, and I got a couple of others. I joined Georgie, um, and that was great R and B. And the guys in that were fantastic because they were like, you know, jazz players, right? And this was my one of my first encounters with, I'll say, real jazz players. In that's what they did, you know. They grabbed hold of me and corrupted me into going to Ronnie Scottson. Nice. Which was the old place at the time, which was down by where it is now the the, the Chinese district. So the Chinese district was uh, was where the old place was. Mm -hmm. And so and then I just started playing down there and staying out all night and you know, being getting corrupted by music. Yeah. Which is great. Thank goodness for that. Yeah, so it kind of sped up and I mean I'm just going through that, but I mean, after Georgie, was, I knew, you know, you just get to know people and they say, hey, do you want to come down and do this? Because they, they like where you're playing. You, you just walk in. And I did a couple of kind of real entrance sessions, which, if, if you like, with like more famous people. And once I'd done that and started playing with, uh, you know, more famous people were doing a lot of sessions, then I was confirmed, you know. Sure. Sure. But the baptism took place and, you know, more fixes were phone me or yeah. music contractors, yeah. as say. But um, so that and really... And, and, and this was about 60 what? Yeah, right. Well... 67? 67, 68, yeah. And then, and then really the big thing, it all started. I did a session with Gary in 69 at Air and I was doing... An overdub in one studio in the jingle, and then uh, um, Elton John was in the other studio, and Kate Bush was in mixing. You know, it was that kind of thing. You're just a couple of years older than me, but I remember those. Yeah. Days, and one of the great things about those days was that word of mouth was everything. I mean, I started in England uh, in '69 playing professionally, then I yeah. went away to Berkeley, and when I came back, it was so quick to get into the scene because of that that word of mouth uh that there was and i'm sure that must have been a great to you because if they i mean it yeah. wouldn't have been any good if you if you walked in and you were crap but it just so happened you you were ray russell and they said oh this guy's quite good i'm going to use him for this and i'm going to you know that's well it's funny enough i mean yeah because there was uh a shortage it's just funny, a shortage of musicians. I read, I was reading uh, a book um, the other day. I'll, I'll, I'm going to, I'm just going to quickly look at it in a second tell you what it was, but it was just about, um, it was just about recording equipment really. And then, and the lady said, I'll, I'll get the book out. And she said, 
it's really weird because she went to that Theonia's monk session and you know that story about I suppose you, you must know this the story about he plays a tune and um, he says right guys let's go and have a listen back and the engineer says okay I've got the sound now let's go Ooh. that one and yeah. he got the big needle about it um, <laughs> but you know that was a technology and and then she she remarked that the the earlier people um, uh, were kind of, you know, from dance bands more. Mm -hmm. And it's like somebody said to me, I won't, I won't mention the guy because he's, he's, he's a great player and he's a listener, but, and he meant it in the best way, but he said, this is just an example. He said, oh, have you brought any gimmicks with you? <laughs> you know, and I I thought he wants, he thought I brought a funny hat and a scarf for him gun that went bang or something you know and uh <laughs> what you know and he said well like you know your pedals your pedals you know yeah and i i said well yeah and he, he looked down and i had his pedal board you know i kind of bought stuff and made it up because yeah. i was emotionally into it you know yeah. which is the thing that we were emotionally into the time yeah and could play you know could play for the song and not you know the earlier guys were great. They, you know, and they played like the early, you know, be, uh, the early kind of uh, themes like this. You know, in on telly here, like the Sweeney, and you know, right. well, like Vic, you know, like Vic did. Yeah. But the later scene, he wasn't that interested in, it, right. to be honest. Right. And he, you know, he went off and, I mean, as you know, it's, it's like he lives near Vegas, and you know, we talk. It's a great, he's a, he's a great guy, but. They didn't really emotionally want to do that, you know. Oh. Um, so obviously, other people came in, like anything, you know, and and who who actually liked the songs in a way. Although, you know, the old uh, thing adage about turf polishing, well, you know, there were a few, and they had to be polished rawly to Indeed. to get out there. Well, that's part of the job. That's what you get paid for, isn't it? That's part of the gig, and that's what you do. I mean, you know, I think the big <clears throat> the big discussion was then was always and probably always has been but you know the guys were the if you like the guys before they come from the dance band era more and so what they played were more notes that were written and then we got into the point where you have a singer songwriter where it all had to happen because they had to have a band and there was no real you know democratization of the studio home studio i mean i hadn't uh you know at anyone's blessing the technology wasn't kind of there made for home studios i mean i'm sure you have i you know and i have one we probably had some of the first recording gear hmm. i mean i vowed to have a home studio after i did uh, i can probably say it now 30 years later but hmm. after doing a session with bergerac right and the guy putting one drum over the mics and i said to him what were you doing before and he said oh i was doing racing yesterday that was great right. because uh, because of the um you know the the, the, ter the terrible kind of scene at the bbc which was you know like you have to do this one day and this the next it was never a music engineer and you know that old faders back to front thing in the bbc exactly. in case somebody sounded it and it will blow the compressor the output compressor if anyone knows that, if any young guys are listening, the faders in the BBC used to go like that and get yeah. quieter and like that and get louder. Exactly. 
and in fact, an old desk from the BBC, we were that a friend of mine bought. We I actually helped him convert the faders the right way around, and which isn't as easy as it sounds. Well, a BBC engineer explained it to me. He said, "Well, it's totally logical. If you want to hear it more, you want to bring the sound closer to you." <laughs> that, so to them, that made sense. But of course, it's a whole different thing. Yeah. Um, well, that I, was you know. I when, found that uh, very much when I when I was working at the BBC, especially in the early days, but right through, uh, was that the BBC engineers, you know, they're very good at what they were used to, but the oh, minute yeah. you veered just slightly away, if, using different sounds, they were slightly flummoxed. But you mentioned Bergerac uh, before, and I that leads yeah. very uh, conveniently uh, into your incredible career writing film and TV themes. Tell me how you first got into that. Well, that's not far from where I, I first got into it. My my mentor in, in that was George Fenton, the composer, because George, um, uh, you know, was was a, a very generous guy, lo lovely guy, obviously a great, great composer. And, you know, his, his success meant that he couldn't rewrite everything. And so we we started. There was he, he, there was a a cartoon series called The Great Mahuzi, which was running on BBC, or it was going to run on BBC, but he couldn't do it. And he said, "Well, I tell you what, I'll I'll write I'll write some of it with Ray, and then you can have both our names." In the other words, they wanted his name, but it's a way of me, you know. And I said, "Yeah, fine. You know, I'm not I'm not I'm not going to make any." You know, it's not a problem. I'll do it. You know, and so, um, and he said, "Well, there you are." Then. And uh, you know, manuscript and uh, this is, uh, yeah, it's just this is really weird because you have to explain to people, uh, people that are younger, that then, you know, it didn't go on the computer. It was on, it was on a VHS or a Umatic, and you had to have a thing called a click book. Do you remember the click book, which was a log log logarithmic book? Of if you wrote it, I mean, give you an easy one. As you know, if you wrote at 120 BPM, then you know it was it worked out evenly per cut. But sometimes the film and the way it just didn't look right, and you were writing at 70.5 or you yeah. know, and you had to work this thing out with the manuscript paper and put little ticks where the, the music changed because you couldn't really count four and press something because it would never be right. So, and so it was score paper. And I basically wrote at George's for a while, as you know, and 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 had to show him everything. And then I, I got, you know, I I got kind of let off to go and write at home. But what we used to do is write until about four or five in the morning, yeah. warm up the curry we bought, nice. and take away at eleven, nice. and eat that, and then and then kind of go home. I can't understand why we left it that late. And but before then, I used to have to give it go to. Um, he lived in West London. And for us, you know, going to West London, then we went to near Heathrow right. to take the parts where this lovely guy copyist called Andre Gersh was waiting. Right. Hi, if rings a bell. He's, he's, he's gone now, but he was waiting at um, the the war museum. Uh, sorry, the war, the, the war statue, which is on one of the corners on the A4 going yeah. towards the airport. We right. had to stop there four or five in the morning, yeah. or I had to, yeah. and give him the, and give him the scores. Right. For the next day, right, and go and do the session, which and was all live. So, yeah, you know, 
I, I had a copyist uh, named uh, Derek Andrews, and I did the same thing to him for years and years and years. Show up at all hours of the day and night with scores. Yeah. And say, you know, we're on in the morning. Let's go. They, they, they're a very brave <laughs> lot, those copies. They're very brave. And i tell you what, you know, he got, oh, poor old Andrew, you know, he got very bad slime. He's got the like, glasses were very thick. And, you know, he looked like bottle tops, you know. And it, there he was in his, his, like, khaki raincoat waiting at the, the war station. And I went there once to meet him, and he wasn't there. And we were really worried. And about... Seven in the morning, his first phone call wasn't to a lawyer, it was to us because he was in jail. He said, They they arrested me for loitering. Oh no. <laughs> he explained. Yeah. He tried to explain. And when he said, I tried to explain about what I was doing, it sounded so ridiculous. He thought, Well, I would arrest me if I was saying that. So he got out, we got him out and explained, and he, he went back and just did the copy and it appeared as usual. Nothing stands in our way, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. It's the so, most important exactly. thing. So so you you actually from from doing those that early work with George, you then continued did you develop relationships with people at, at for instance the BBC and ITV and different different companies? They called yeah. you said, Hey, we heard what you did on that. Would you like to come do something <clears throat> for us? Yeah. I mean some people say you're as good as your last, um, you know, score or whatever, but it's not quite like that. You know, that's a, that's a quite a hard thing to say. I think in a way you are, you know, people just like the way you write. They might not like the film, but they, you know, come out whistling the music, which is right. really what you don't really want to come out whistling the lighting or the, <laughs> in a way, the sound design, because it's not going to, not going to whistle. But although sound design is great, you know, it just, there's so many, th there's so many stories you can tell and, you know, you have to be, you have to be good at, at storytelling. And that is the main, the main thing I found with uh, all, all that stuff. And I do now, you know, with, with things um, and the music's like the third year, you know, and it, it, it kind of gives it, gives it the dimension that, you know, it can't have, it just, that's, that's what music does. You know, it's a, as um, someone said, it lights a kind of candle under the. Um, it warms up the whole picture, you know. It, it needs it, need, it needs that kind of music, and I mean that was traditionally people using strings, and you know because that's how it had to sound, you know. And that lush sound was is still here, you know. But of course, you know it all depends on uh, on budget. Now, you know some people think you can do it at home don't really learn the difference um and i do do it at home but you know you do need you know th i find things that have real instruments on in the end will kind of have more shelf life well i completely agree with you and uh, uh one of the things that i i don't know if you've been aware of but it certainly has made me slightly uh feel uh unpleasant is the number of uh computer programs there are now software that that musicians can buy today which not only have libraries of sounds you know which mm. is fair enough it's like an mm. instrument you know you need something that goes crash you need something that goes boom but you can actually now buy uh software that will give you melodies chord progressions uh all the instruments playing them perfectly recorded mm. beautifully and you can mix and match all these eight bar sections uh, sections of thoroughly composed music 
and that's and you are now a composer and mm. uh there's there's this great mm. uh, quote in one of my interviews on the station where lyle may says well apparently now you don't have to go to school at all you don't have to study your instrument you don't have to study music you just be able to press a few buttons and you're a composer i mean i don't know how you feel about that but i i feel kind of bad about that i feel do you know what i feel really bad about is that you go to school and you can you can learn to read and write and you um you know that's a great that's a great buzz you know to to write somebody but now you can you know do it on a computer you know obviously it's great for some people that you know need need a computer i like you know dyslexic people and you know people that have a have a problem but i think i think the thing about music is what's what the wonderful thing is if you're writing it and you come up with something that you like and you've been creative the 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 problem is when you know people talk about you know you kind of you kind of workload and things they're talking about work you know i'm talking about creating music i'm i'm talking about writing music composing i'm not i'm not i'm not talking about people's kind of workload you know in oh i've got this is going to take me an hour doing this pressing this and doing that you know like a machine shop i'm talking about yeah okay i use a computer yeah and i you know i love you know the technology and it's fantastic but you know it's democratized so it means it's great everyone can do it but you know not everyone can really do it but the problem there is some things get through that are just not happening that are just polished and uh you know what i mean and it's like it's not very good so you know and also they've never really had to have the experience that you know of coming up with something that fits hitting the nail on the head is a kind of you know without overplaying this thing it is a, a kind of spiritual experience it's a thing that you know emotionally makes you grow mm. and spiritually makes you grow so you know it's it's very important that your input goes into it because your name is on the end of it and i'd hate to see see why i hate is like someone say oh yeah well that isn't that sample from that was from you know uh you know exactly. dx8 or that thing was from uh, do you remember that sample you know it's like that you know what some of those ghost programs and they've got their finger on middle c on this loop it goes whoa you know and somebody sampled it and they've gone they've claimed the credits for the composing all the way through exactly exactly you know good good luck you know to the house they with it and you know i don't you know that's fine i'm not you know it's it's not bad it's just that it's bad bad for them i'm not i'm not moaning about the money they make or don't make probably you know um but what i'm, I'm saying is they're never gonna feel the feeling that we can if you actually you know like it's like you know having great night playing or you know working or not coming up with this thing you've probably struggled for for hours to get absolutely right with the dialogue and it's great you know why should it be easy mm. you know if it's easy everyone can do it oh sorry everyone's doing it well mm. why are they doing it oh because it's become easy for that but that you know it doesn't mean it doesn't make you any better no. it might make you rich it might make i mean it's, i sound like sound like jesus i'm sorry but you know it's not that it's just it might make you rich and it might make you do this and that but it you know it doesn't make you as a person well on, on that subject then i would love you to say 
I'd love you to tell me what the absolute most fun project you've ever worked on is. I'll tell you what, I'll give it to you in, in a day. I mean, I think, <laughs> I'll tell you why I'll do this, because there's some, you say, you know, or you, you know, you play with McCartney. Well, that was great. He said, you know, just play over these chords. And I did. And I just kind of listened to what he was on about emotionally and played, tried to fit in with that. So, you know, you play for the song. You don't play for yourself. You don't put what you want to put on it. You play, you play for the song. You morph into that song. Okay, so that's great. But the when sessions were at their height in London and you could park on yellow lines and say you were delivering and get away with murder without, you know, having to park the car and nice things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I did a day and I call it a day in life, which I, I will remember forever in sessions that depicted the whole thing for me of how great it all was. And that was the the jingles had to start at eight or nine because people were working at 10 o'clock. Right. So at eight o'clock, I turn up, I do, a, I do a session and it's a punky thing. And I see Johnny Rotten appearing in there, who's actually kind of written it. Right. And he said, it's going to be like this, ginger, ginger, and it's really nice guy. It's fantastic. And he plays thing. So we all play. He says, hey, you guys, that's really great. That's really punky. I like that. I like that. So nine o'clock, we have a roadie, as you probably know, and the guy, Terry, I think it was, he came and took our gear down the road and uh, to Air Studios. I worked all, all day with Andy Williams. Great. Right. Now, as you probably know, I suddenly got, you know, the wardrobe out, which, you know, we call the semi-acoustic, which is, you know, beautiful. Um, I had this thing we sold Gibson for years and I never used it. And then suddenly the day before it's, can you do this? And I said, all right, yeah, okay. And I come out and playing along. He said, oh, that sounds nice. And Andy likes to do everything live because he's a very, you know, very old school. I mean, yeah. you know, he, he started way before there was editing. Yeah. Um, and first, first thing up was Day of wine, Days of Wine and Roses. And I played a couple of chords, you know, big, you know, the big chords. Yeah. And I realized that no one else was playing and everyone around. And it was me for eight bars, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, it was Days of Wine and Roses, you, you, some of the original guitar parts are kind of, you know, they're all playing. I'm going, oh, I've got to be that, you know which is difficult. Anyway, I got the thing. We did about four takes and they liked it. And then I took the pad. There was a on the first break. I took all the music. At Air Studios, there was a loo upstairs, big right. row of loos, because it used to be a shop. <clears throat> there was about 20 kind of, you know, stables of horses ready to bolt, you know. Oh, and yeah. I just went up there. I took the, took the music and I sat down in the loo and I, I looked at everyone as much as I could just to make sure... I was never going to get caught out because you never know with these things. Anyway, so we did that. So it finished at five, went a little bit over. I met up with Mo Foster. We had kind of a, an early dinner because it was Mo's curry. And then we went to Ronnie's and did and did uh, the uh, Gil Evans Orchestra. Wow. Because we were in Gil Evans Orchestra at the time and we just done a European tour. Um, so we did that, ended at three o'clock in the morning and then at four o'clock i went uh to see uh greg walsh producer and i was playing with heaven 17 at the time on the on their albums as in fact right. I did 
all the albums from Greg produced it, and there was Tina Turner. <laughs> so, you know, uh, you know, let's stay together. The old Al Green song. Indeed, indeed. And we did, and he came in, and they had like what? Because Heaven Seventeen were one of the first techno bands. They had a Fairlight, which yeah. was a bit, you know, the Fairlight was a bit dodgy, but they were the first band I know to put loops like record herself on a multi track and then put it in a Fairlight and make up right. the song. Right. See, so they were kind of doing that, you know, in then in the eighties. And um, anyway, so I came in and I was with my wife. Uh, well, she wasn't. I wasn't married to her then, uh, Sally, you know, and yes, she came to hear Ronnie's and we, we went down and we, I carried a few, I carried my pedals, there was an amp there and had my guitar on my back. It was like, you know, it was kind of poetic, you know, <laughs> in, in the, you know, it was all like, yeah, it was yeah. great. We had a great gig. So it, it felt really, you know, really up, went in and he said, Greg said, yeah, just put this, uh, this is a song put some fills on, play some rhythm. So I did a rhythm chat, the fills track. And as I say, it was Let's Stay Together. And then he said to Tina, who was talking to Sally in the corner, you know, because studio's a great leveler. When Unless you're really kind of big time and not really going to talk to anybody, you just come in and you're just a person, a talented person. The mixes of everybody else, right? Because right. it's a group effort. You don't want all that other, you know, malarkey going on where... You know, you're too big time to talk to the band because that won't get you anywhere. And it, it never has if you, right. you know, historically. Anyway, she was having this great conversation. Um, and I had to kind of break up. So she fancy putting the vocal on. So, you know, I mean, she did it in the first take. I mean, the beginning of that song for me is, you know, it's just amazing. You know, she just sings so well. And it did one for safety because, you know, that was the way it is. Uh, but of course, you know, I didn't bother because it was analog. Do you want for safety if it's logic? No. Um, oh, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Much better now. But um, but you know, anyway, because you know, right. because it was oxide, they had to burn a bit more to make sure because she was going back to the states. So did it again. It was fantastic. Choose which one you couldn't. I mean, they I, they used most of the first take, and a few ad libs from the second one in the end, and right. that was it. I remember Frank Ricotti had, had just gone. He played uh, Congress. Um, and you know, so I played the overdub. The drums were were computer based, but then again, they were kind of playing them in. So it wasn't really a drum machine. It was right, right. stuff in. So it was kind of interesting. It was like you know, that was it between the two between the two worlds, you know, a techno band, but all the stuff on the fairlight was live and just all right. back. So in a way you could say, Well, like having a sample of real things. Yeah. They were doing that then. Yeah, but in a in a kind of different different way, you know. And it's now about four in the morning or five in the morning. Well, about four or five. We got in the car and and we were driving back home uh, to South London, to, you know. And the dawn was coming up, and I thought, whoa, that was a bit of a blast. And uh, and then the final the final uh, punchline was Sally said, "Who's you know he's twelve years older than me, so." I mean, yeah, no, it's younger, younger. I'll, she'll kill me if she heard that. Edit, edit. I'll cut it out. I'll cut it out. No, no. She, oh, she heard me. <laughs> she heard me. Oh, she, I'm, I'm so. She's, she's younger, much younger than me. Twelve years younger. And she said to me, <laughs> the guy said, "That was a great session. Who was that?" <laughs> because she didn't know because there was that gap between, you know, Tina's terrible time 
with Ike. Sure, yes. You know? yes and then she kind of went off the radar in a way and, you know, was working to get herself together. It was that, it was that new wave of, of let's stay together and what's love got to do with right, it. Right, right, indeed, yeah. Was, sure. you know, her big hits, which that's actually right. came out of the UK. Yeah. So that's, and that's how that was. And, yeah. you know, so I was on a first sort of comeback hit, which is just, you, you know, you don't know at the time. It's, right. it's like people saying... Well, right. I mean, it's like people saying, you know, with John Barry, and you, oh, you played the James Bond theme on those films, and yeah. you know, and you know, uh, it's fantastic. And you, and I said, yeah, actually, it is. I said, didn't you feel? What did you feel at the time? I said, well, to be honest, I was looking at the music and wanted to make you know a great job of it, but I didn't realize it would become, sure. you know, a kind of sect. It was like it became, you know, it's become so legendary now. Right. Right. But well, at the time, you don't think of anything. The old cliche about life happening while you're doing something else. And, yeah, uh, sure. And I think that's that's been true. I mean, that's a, a, an ex experience that we share because we've yeah. both lived a long time and we've both done a lot of different things. Except you, you're younger than me. I'm a little younger than you. Than you. Yeah. It's got to be the lighting, though. I mean, I've worked uh, yeah. out. It's I think I'm four years younger than you. Yeah. Uh, hey, you know, I actually, it's embarrassing to say this because we've done sessions together. Not yeah. Two, but we've done a few sessions together. And, yeah. But I think this is the longest that we've ever had to talk to each other. Oh, so I'm well, isn't that true of sessions? I mean, you yeah. kind of say hi and you talk a bit. Yeah. And it's hi, like, here's the music. And you look at it and you say, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> but, but you know, this is this has been so great for me. And I, I'm, I'm uh, very, very grateful that you we've been able to work this out. And I'm still going to hold you to doing something live uh, with Mo and maybe even with Ian Palmer, you can get together. We can we can record something for the show. That would be great. Well, that's, that would be great. Yeah, I I kind of wrote a PhD, right? Like you did. You're a doc. You've got a doctorate. Yeah, yeah. And I wrote this thing, and and some people read it. They realized, and I realized from because of all the reading you have to do. Of course. Is that so few people? So few people actually write about how do you do this, and the actual books on on what's cognitive okay you know what's creative in a group mm -hmm. is there's so much social right yes life going on and now there's such a lack of social life i don't mean just because of the epidemic but i mean the way we record is 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 very is very secular now and yeah. and that causes a lot of people not to have the kind of you know feeling of playing together yes indeed which i you could do you can play on your own and play as a group if you knew what it was like to play as a group yes you can play and you can imagine yourself in there yeah and use techniques but you've only learned those as playing as a group right, right. and that's okay. something i want to, want to say because you know that i'm sure a lot of people can can play and play together but you know actually going into the you know the actual ethical the the language of playing together right uh you know it's very difficult if you haven't ever done it gary burton once explained it that you know playing solo is like giving a speech. Uh, mm. Playing duo is like having a conversation, and playing <laughs> yeah. playing with a group is like having a, a, a meeting. And and you know, uh, two minds can be better than one, and six minds can be better than one, and one mind can be. It just depends. But every time, depends, yeah. every time we play together, we are having a magical experience because there's a mm. bunch of human beings who are only on the planet for a very short time having yeah. something that they can do together 
towards the same end. Are you still quarantined at home, doing your best not to fall asleep in the lonely, mind-numbing silence of it all? Fear not. Help is at hand from me, Richard Niles. Listen to my podcast, Radio Richard, and you'll hear intriguing interviews and heart-palpitating performances from master musicians like Maria Schneider, Trevor Horn, Hamish Stewart from the Average White Band, and the free play duo. Believe me, you'll be glad you're alone with no one to distract you from all this amazing stuff. Don't miss a moment of the fun. Subscribe to Radio Richard. That's what I'm talking about.